0: This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast and God bless. I want you to be a part of that the 21st, first, six, and if you're interested in singing and being part of the team that's going to lead that, there'll be practice tonight in the worship center here at 6 o'clock. Let's pray together as we begin. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to study your word We thank you for the time that we can share together, Father, just opening the text of Scripture. We pray, Lord, that you would keep our minds free from distraction, that we would be able to understand clearly exactly what you've shown us in your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would take what we've learned and apply it to our lives to be transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Now, if I said the rod of Asclepius, would anybody know what I'm talking about? good. That's good. An illustration that nobody knows about that I'm glad for. Let's show a picture. I think we've got a picture of the rod of Asclepius. See that? You've seen that before. The serpent surrounding the staff. There's a a couple of variations. Show the next one if you would please. Yeah, the two serpents surrounding the staff. Now before I show you the third picture, what, what does this usually represent for us? Anybody know? Medicine, healing, right? So go ahead and show the third one. That's the EMS star of life. Maybe you've seen that on the side of the patches of the, of the men and women that are first responders. Now, it's an interesting question I want to ask. Why would we use a stake, a staff, and a serpent wrapped around a staff to represent healing, to represent medicine? It's an interesting question, and I think it's a question we can answer this morning as we delve into our passage of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Now this is week 5. Go ahead and bring up our main slide, Steve. We're going, we're, going, we're going to hold off just for a second on our scripture. This is week 5 in our sermon series entitled The Great Story. We began several weeks ago by examining in this sermon series Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now you say, well, I thought Christ was in the New Testament. He is. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, and of course the remainder of the New Testament looks back at his life. But as we begin to examine, beginning in Genesis chapter 1, the story of God's plan for humankind, we begin to see little blips and little pieces of the picture of the Messiah. Now we haven't seen a complete picture of him yet. We don't know exactly what he's going to look like, but we see these images in this veiled picture of in the Old Testament of who Christ is going to look like. So we, we've we seen this thread that begins in the beginning of Genesis, and it runs all the way through the Old Testament and eventually into the New Testament. And it's ultimately a picture of God saving His people through Jesus Christ. Now we began in Genesis a few weeks ago. We moved last week to Exodus. This week we're in the book of Numbers as we continue our examination of the Old Testament and our continued examination of the great story, but I want to catch us up to this point. We began in Genesis chapter 1 with creation, Genesis chapter 3, the fall and the sin of man. We saw the picture of the serpent, a veiled picture of who Christ was going to be. We moved to the story of Abraham and Isaac. Last week we examined the children of Israel living in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. We saw that through a series of plagues, the 10th plague, God sent the death angel And the people of Israel were commanded to take a lamb that was spotless and without blemish to sacrifice that lamb to paint the blood over the door. That's a picture of Christ. When the death angel would come to the house, the angel would see the blood over the doorpost and would pass over. Now let me catch you up between last week and this week. After the tenth plague, the Pharaoh tells the people of of Israel, Leave. Just go ahead and get out. Now they go through the Red Sea, he tries to follow, the sea crashes on and kills Pharaoh and his army. But the children of Israel are now free in the wilderness for God to lead them to the promised land. Remember, he promised to Abraham the promised land. The children of Israel are now in the wilderness making their way to the promised land. Now here's the interesting part of the story. What should have taken them just a few weeks, maybe a couple of months at the most to make that trek across the desert into the promised land has at this point in the context of what we're going to look at this morning taken them almost 40 years. So a trip that should have taken a few weeks has now taken 40 years. And you say, well, why, why would the children of Israel take 40 years to walk somewhere it should have taken them just a few weeks? Well, because they grumbled against God. They complain that God wasn't giving them everything that they needed. They complain that He wasn't providing for their needs. And over and over and over again, we see that they have grumbled and complained and argued with God. And He's allowed them just to wander for 40 years. Now, it's in that context of wandering for 40 years that we pick up the account of the story in Numbers chapter 21. Now, here's what we're going to see. I'm going to include you in. We're going to see in Numbers chapter 21, ultimately, the picture of the Savior, the Messiah. But in the process of getting to the Messiah, we're going to see this incredible picture in the Old Testament of salvation. It's one of the clear pictures of salvation we're going to see in the Old Testament. So if you've got your Bibles, and you're open to Numbers chapter 21, let's go ahead and delve into verse 4. Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4. They... The children of Israel traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, But the people grew impatient on their way. Verse 5, they spoke against God and against Moses and they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now, by the way, that's not true. There was bread and there was water, but they're complaining against God. Now, look at verse 6. Then... The Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. So the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake. Now here's the picture, right? The rod of Asaphius. Here it is. Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. There's healing. Verse 9. So Moses made a bronze snake, he put it on a pole, then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Now you may be thinking, that's a very interesting story. A story of serpents in the desert, a story of people wandering, a story of people being bitten and killed, and eventually this picture of a snake put on this pole and lifted up. You say, Adam, that's that's a very interesting story. But what does that have to do with the great story? What does that have to do with the Messiah and with Jesus Christ? How can we see Christ in Numbers chapter 21? Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to do something for you. I want you to hold your place in Numbers chapter 21, and I want you to flip over to John chapter 3. Hold your spot in Numbers 21. Flip over to John chapter 3. If you don't have your Bibles, we're going to show it up on the screen. John chapter 3, let me remind you what's going on. Nicodemus has come to Christ at night. And he's asked Jesus some specific questions. Jesus is in the process of explaining to Nicodemus salvation. Now John 3:16, probably the most well-known verse in all the scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have what eternal life. That's John 3:16. We know those verses. But the two verses that precede John 3:16 John 14 and John, John chapter 3, verse 14, and John chapter 3, verse 15. I want you to listen to what Christ says. This is important. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus in verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, there's Numbers 21 right there. See that? If you're making notes in your Bible, you ought to jot down beside John 3 14. Numbers 21. And at Numbers 21, you ought to jot down John 3:14 and 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Verse 14. That everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Now here's what Christ is doing here in John chapter 3 verse 14 and 15. He's not only painting a picture and showing a picture of His crucifixion based on the snake in the wilderness in Numbers chapter 21. But He's showing us that this is also tied in with eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So here's what Jesus has done. He's taken Numbers chapter 21, and he's drawn a direct line from Numbers 21 to John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. See what he's doing? He's drawn a direct line from the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness to Him being lifted up on the cross. And as people receive salvation and healing through the serpent, people will also receive salvation and healing through Christ. So with that background in mind, let's delve into this passage of Scripture. It's going to give us a very interesting picture of Christ and a picture of salvation. Numbers 21. Let's look at verse 4 and 5 one more time here. Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, But the people grew impatient on the way. Now listen to the beginning of verse 5. They, those are the children of Israel, spoke against God. That's very important for you to remember. And against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Now we're going to see in Numbers 21 a picture of Christ. But we're also going to see this very interesting progression of salvation. And the people in Numbers 21, the children of Israel, are going to begin right where we begin when we begin to discuss salvation. The first thing we notice in this text is sin. That's number one. The children of Israel find themselves in a place of sin. Now, they had become experts at arguing with God. In fact, if you were to go back and read Exodus, if you were to go back and read Numbers, if you were to go back and read these portions of Scripture when the children of Israel were wandering in the desert, you'll see that they became very good at grumbling They became very good at complaining. They became very good at questioning God and all that he had done. Now here's what they're ultimately going to say to God. God, we know that you've given us all these things. God, you've provided food. He provided manna for them every day so they could eat. He provided quail so that they could eat. He provided water so that they could drink. Here's what the children of Israel are ultimately saying. God, you've given us all these things, but it's not enough. You see that? God, you've given us all these things, but it's not enough. God, we don't trust you that you know best for us. We don't trust you that you've given us the things that we really need. We're not content in you, God. Now, we live in a society where contentment is a very difficult thing to grasp, isn't it? You say, what do you you mean, Adam? Well, Well, you can do a little exercise for me. If you think you're content with the vehicle you drive, then after church, drive by one of the dealerships and just ride around looking at new cars. Wow, I thought our car was nice until I saw this one. Oh, have you you seen the 2013 model? Oh, can you believe how nice this is? If you think you're content with your house, just ride through the new neighborhoods, right? They're building houses like that now? Oh, wow. Could 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 you imagine if we bought... If you think you're content with with your fixtures in your bathroom, just walk down an aisle at Home Depot and look at all the brand new fixtures. Wow, could you imagine, honey? If you think you're content with the lights in your house, walk through and look at all the new lights. Right On and on the list goes. It's very difficult for us in our society sometimes to find true contentment, isn't it? Now, we talk to our kids a lot about this at our house. And here's the phrase we use with our children sometimes. We'll say something like this. Listen. Let's be excited and happy for the things that we have and not disappointed in the things that we don't have. (laughs) And so for us and our family, it looks something like this. Our our kids have gone to somebody's house. Maybe we're eating dinner with some friends. We've been over there for a few hours and it's time to go. And what do the kids always say? Oh, can we stay a little bit longer? We just got here, right? Well, we've been here like four hours, kids. It's time to go, right? We're in the car and they're like, you know, we had to leave. Well, listen, let's be thankful For the four hours that we had, and not upset about the 30 minutes that we didn't have. We had the opportunity yesterday, some friends of ours gave us two tickets to the Auburn-Arkansas game. Auburn fans, I'm really sorry about what happened yesterday. But I'm not as sorry about what happened there as I am about what happened to Georgia. So it's just a bad day all around. The Braves lost, bad, bad weekend But so Amy and I started talking about these two tickets, and we said, you know, let's let Gracie go, because Gracie wants to go. She's never been to a game, so Amy and Gracie went to the Auburn game. They had a great time. But I was left with the task of explaining to the other children they weren't going, right? We didn't have but two tickets. (laughs) So I go to Abby. She's my eight-year-old. She's our middle girl. And I sat down with Abby, and I said, honey, you know how we talk about God blessing us and God blessing our siblings? And, And we say this to our kids. We want to be happy when God does other things for other people, right? And so I explained to her, Gracie's going to get this ticket. And, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't too excited about it at first. <laughs> but as we talked, she got a little bit more excited. She ended the conversation by saying this. She said, Dad, could I tell Gracie she's going to get to go to the game? Yes, you can, honey. I would love for you to tell Gracie. See, she, she ultimately, it didn't start here, <laughs> but it ended in her being content that her sister was going to be able to go. Now, I promised her ice cream later in the day. I don't know how much that had to do with it. <laughs> We all enjoyed the spoils of that as a family. We didn't get ice cream yesterday. But she was, she was happy for her sister. Right? We have a hard time doing that, don't we? We have a hard time being content for that other guy. Because oftentimes we look at God and say, why would you give him this guy? You didn't give it to me. Why would you do that for that person? Sometimes we need to be thankful that God is blessing other people. And we need to be content right where we are. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 11, he says, For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Isn't that amazing? He says, I I know what it is to be in need, which, by the way, I don't think any of us ever really have known need in our context. And I know what it is to have plenty, he says. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, here's the key. He says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. You see that? Paul says, "Our ultimate contentment lies not in the things of the world. our ultimate contentment lies in the things of God." The children of Israel didn't get that. Now I want to be very clear here before we move on from this point. as we think about the children of Israel and the mistakes they made and the grumbling and the complaining against God, we need to see those things for what they truly are. They're sin. Not finding contentment in God is a sin. Not trusting in God is a sin. Now, we defined sin a couple of weeks ago like this. Sin is a failure to conform to the moral law of God. It's a failure to conform to God's commands. Now, we talked about sinning in our attitudes. We can have sinful attitudes. We talked about sinning in our thoughts. We talked about sinning in our actions, which, by the way, our, our sinful actions usually begin with our sinful thoughts, right? It's a progression right here. But here's the thing that the Bible teaches about sin. Here's the problem we run into as human beings. The Bible clearly teaches that we're all sinful. That's Romans 3. But the Bible also clearly teaches in Romans, 6 that the wage, Romans 5 that the wages of sin is death, right? So the Bible says this. Let's just lay it out real, real clearly. If we're living in this state of sin and we're walking in this state of sin, ultimately we're going to lead to what? Death. That's what the Bible teaches. And so these people of Israel, God's chosen people, are living in sin. Now this is a picture of salvation. Watch where we're going here. They begin in a sinful state just like we do. And so the question becomes this as we study Scripture. If they're living in a state of sin and walking toward death, what's God going to do about it for them? Well, let's see what he does. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 of Numbers chapter 21. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among the people. Now, that's, just imagine what that must have been like. I don't have a, necessary, I don't have a fear of snakes but I've got a fear of venomous snakes all around me biting everybody, right? Just like you do. So the Bible says that the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. Now here's where we're going. Here's the progression, ready? First of all, we see the sin. That's number one. It begins there. After the sin, the next progression scripturally is, number two, judgment. You see that? It's the picture of salvation for us. There's sin first. Second, there's judgment. I can, already, I can already answer some of the questions. Here, here, here's what some of you are thinking. I'm not comfortable talking about the judgment of God. I just, That's not a place I want to go. You know, I'm just, I don't want to think about that. Let's not think about the judgment of God. Let's think about the love of God. Let's think about the fact that God is love and that God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins and all the things that God does to show us and demonstrate his love. And I would affirm 100% of that. The Bible says that God is love. The Bible says that God loved us so much that He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. God absolutely loves us, but we can't overlook the fact that God is also just. And because God is holy, He cannot look upon sin. So when there is sin, there must be judgment. Now you may not like it, I may not like it, we may not be comfortable thinking about it, but it is scriptural, it's what the Bible teaches Now, it's interesting to me to to see exactly how God brings this judgment to these people. There are all kinds of things he could have done, but instead of choosing all these other things, he chooses what? A snake, a serpent. (laughs) You see the picture there of Genesis chapter 3? You see what's happening here? It's a reminder to these people that the serpent is still alive and well. The same serpent in the Garden of Eden, right? Satan. If still alive and well in our lives and still biting and still nipping and still destroying and trying to attack us every way he can. So we ask ourselves the question, okay, I, I get the fact that God is just and there's judgment, but why does he do this? I mean, why does God punish sin? Well, Number one, he's holy. He is holy. He cannot look upon sin. That's clear throughout Scripture. But I think the thing we miss sometimes about judgment, about God disciplining the, the children that he loves, is that it's a means of grace in our lives when God disciplines us. You say, how is is discipline a means of grace? Well, let's understand the picture again. If we're living in sin, the Bible's clear that sin will lead to death. If something doesn't happen between our sin, we're going to lead to death. You understand that, right? If something doesn't change between our sin and this ground we're walking on, we're ultimately going to be led to death. Now, an analogy that will help us understand this is that of a parent. If you're a parent or grandparent or teacher, if you've ever disciplined a child, which if you have children, you've disciplined them. <laughs> if you've ever disciplined a child, you understand that it can be very difficult to discipline a child. It's certainly not something we enjoy as parents. It's certainly not something we look forward to. In fact, it's a lot easier not to discipline sometimes, isn't it? It's a lot easier just kind of sweeping it under the rug, or you know, go in there and play or go turn the TV on. I'm, I'm busy. But we understand that a parent that truly loves their child, and the Bible says this, will discipline their child. Why? Because we want them to understand there's a way they're supposed to grow up. And the way they're living right now and the things that they're doing are going to lead them to a place they don't want to go to. You know, think about it like this. If your child was in imminent danger, I mean imminent danger, you would do everything in your power to save that child, wouldn't you? Even if it meant you had to grab your child and throw them out of the way or throw them to safety, you think, well, I would never grab my child and throw them and push them. If they were in imminent danger, you would. You would do everything you possibly could to save that child, Right? That's God's grace in our lives when he brings judgment and he brings condemnation upon us. When he corrects and disciplines the ones he loves, his children, he's showing us grace. He's saying, it's going to be hard here in this process, but it's a lot better than you walk into death down here. You understand that? So God demonstrates his love to us through disciplining our sin. You say, okay, all right, all right, I get that theologically. I get that, I understand God is holy. He can't look upon sin. He extends grace to us by disciplining us in here so we don't live a life of sin and ultimately leads to death. But you say, what does that mean in the real world? How does that flesh out in my life? What does that look like for me in the context of where I'm living? Well, there are two different routes we could go here. If you're an unbeliever and you have never accepted the forgiveness of Christ in your life, never accepted Him as your Savior, then you're walking towards ultimate, ultimately spiritual death. You're walking towards an eternity lived without Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. That's interesting because we we try to do all sorts of things to, to justify how we can live or justify ways that we can do things to get closer to God. I want to read what one author said. He summarized it probably better than I could. Here's what he said. He said, my friend, you can join a society. You can join a church. You can sign a pledge card. You can go through Bible lessons. You can give money. You can even get baptized and die without God, That's a wake-up call, I think, for some of us. He said, we have been bitten by sin, and it's a mortal wound. You see, you can't do anything in your own power to fix the problem of sin and judgment. You can't do anything in your own power to save yourself. But here's the beautiful part about what God's going to do here. God's going to provide hope for you in Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So that's the unbeliever, right? But what about me, Adam? I'm a Christian. I accepted Christ a long time ago, and I've been baptized, and I know it's a true salvation. I truly accept Him. What about, what about me? Well, here's the problem we run into as believers. It's very easy for us, in our context, in our world, in our lives, to fall into sin, isn't it? We all understand that. Believers still Sin. But here's the problem if we allow that sin to continue to work in our lives. We, we read passages like Romans 6.16. It says this, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. See, we can get caught up in sin so much that it enslaves us. That it keeps us from living the life that God's called us to live. It keeps us from being the believer that God wants us to believe. And the devil's going to do everything he can to continue to trick us, to continue to make us believe that we're not going to be allowed to do the things God's called us to do, and he leads us to sin that causes it. Now here's the interesting thing about what goes on in the life of the children of Israel. Here's an interesting thing that goes on in our lives in this progression of sin. Here's what happens with the consequences and the judgment. The consequences of sin and the judgment of sin will sometimes point us toward our need for forgiveness and a savior. See that? Because there is justice. And because there is wrath. And sometimes punishment. That punishment will sometimes point us towards the need for forgiveness and a savior. Look at verse 7. That's exactly what happens. Verse 7 says this. Of Numbers chapter 21. The people came to Moses and said. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, if you're taking notes in your Bible in Numbers chapter 21, verse 7, you ought to underline, we sinned. Because here's what we see now in this progression. We see sin, it begins there as it does in every life. It moves to judgment. And then the third thing we notice in this passage in this progression is repentance. We have sin. We have judgment. We have repentance. Now, I want to define repentance like this. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment and obedience to Christ. Here's Here's what repentance means. Repentance means that we acknowledge our sin, we sinned. Not only did we sin, but we're going to turn from that sin. We want to ask for forgiveness for it, and we're not going to go back there. Now here's what true repentance is. Lord, forgive me of this sin. I'm not going to do that anymore through the power of Christ in my life. This is not true repentance. Lord, forgive me of this sin, and I'm going to do this again tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> and then tomorrow, Lord, forgive me again for this sin, and then I'm going I'm to do it the next day, and then forgive me, and I'm going to do it again, and forgive me, and I'm going to do it again, and on and on the process goes on. God is faithful and just, and God will continue to forgive, but God expects true repentance in our hearts. you understand that? It's not enough just to say the words and not mean them. God expects us to repent and to turn. Now, repentance is found all through the New Testament. In fact, if you go back and study the life of Christ, when Christ came out of the wilderness when Christ came out of the temptation in the wilderness, and he begins to preach, Matthew 4, 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Now listen to this. These are the first words that come out of Christ's mouth in his preaching ministry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. For that time, Jesus began to preach. Here's what he said. Repent. That's the first thing he says. The first thing that Christ says in his preaching ministry, is he begins his ministry on earth, is to repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. Now here's the thing we understand about repentance and we understand about the children of Israel. The first step in our repentance is to take responsibility for our sin, right? I mean, I, I love what the children of Israel say, right? They're, they're not beating around the bush. We sinned. You know, we, we live in a world where responsibility is not oftentimes taken, is it? It seems like the people pass the buck every time they get a chance. And we see it in other people, don't we? Man, it's easy for us to sit at home and look at politicians and go, oh, they're not taking responsibility for their actions. It's easy for us to go to work and say, oh, our boss isn't taking responsibility for his or her actions, right? Man, it's easy to go to work and think about our coworker That, that person's not taking responsibility for their actions. It's easy for us to look at the world and see that they're not taking responsibility for actions. But we ask ourselves the question, are we taking responsibility for our actions? You see, repentance begins here. It begins with us. It's interesting to me, if you study, when we look at Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, God goes to Adam. You remember the story? And he said, Adam, why did you do this? Do you remember what Adam says? Eve made me do it. He goes to Eve. Eve, why, why did you do this? Do you remember what Eve said? The devil made me do it. You remember? I mean, it's, it's natural human tendency when we sin to pass the buck. We don't take responsibility. We want to blame somebody else. Somebody else made me do it. Or somebody else said something and led me. And somebody else did that. God's going to hold, those are people responsible for their actions. But ultimately, God's going to hold you responsible for your actions. Repentance begins in your heart. But look at what the children of Israel say in verse 7. They're very clear right here. We sinned when we spoke against the Lord, right? That's the the issue of repentance. Now listen to what they ask. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away. So Moses prayed for the people. I love that prayer. We've sinned. We see the judgment. We repent by acknowledging our sinfulness. Now we're going to ask you, Lord, to take away the snakes. Now here's the interesting part. God doesn't take away the snakes. In fact, the Bible says that there are people that are going to continue to be bitten. And when they are bitten, they can look upon the pole. God doesn't remove the sinfulness that surrounds them. But here's the beautiful part about this story. God does provide a way out as he always has. He says, I'm not going to remove the snakes I'm not going to remove the venom, but I'm going to give you a way out. Look at verse 8. So the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it up on a pole, and anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. There's the way out. So Moses made a bronze snake. He put it on a pole, then anyone who was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So, So again, here's the progression. We see sin, it begins there. We see judgment, we see repentance, and then fourth, God provides a way out. The fourth thing we see is the Savior. You see that? There's sin, there's judgment, there's repentance, and there's the Savior. Now, now we ask ourselves the question, I'm sure the Israelites ask themselves the same question, why are we putting a snake on the pole again? This is an interesting thing to do, God. All we asked you to do was to take the snakes away. I mean, just just take the snakes away, God, and we'll be fine, right? We don't need poles, and we don't need brass serpents. We don't need that stuff. Just take the snakes away, and everything will be fine. But see, here's what God understands. There's still going to be sin in the world, right? And if it wasn't the snakes, it was something else. If it wasn't one mistake, then it was another. And God's not going to remove the sin from the world, but what He's going to do instead is He's going to give us an opportunity for the Savior. Now, I just wonder, the children of Israel thinking through this, if they they ask certain questions like, God, you know, pole and snakes, and maybe we could do it a different way. Maybe we should go and find some herbs and some plants and mix those things together and make some medicines. Yeah, 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 that that, that makes sense. We'll make some medicines and we'll rub it on where we got bit or we'll we'll swallow it and ingest it, and that will heal us. God says, no, I don't want you to do it that way. Okay, well, maybe we can act a certain way then, God. Maybe we can do a certain number of good things. Yeah, yeah, that works, right? We're going to do a certain number of good things. The more good things we do, The more you'll see that we really mean what we say and you'll begin to forgive us. No, no, God said, we're not going to do it that way. Okay, well then maybe maybe we can give some stuff to people. Maybe we can give you possessions or maybe we can do some more sacrifices or maybe there's certain things that we can do in order to get this forgiveness. And God says, no, no, none of those things are going to work. God says, nothing is going to work for you. Nothing you can do is going to bring healing to yourself outside of my will. That's important. Now see, here's where the rubber meets the road for us in our current context. Nothing you can do will work your way into salvation. Do you understand that? You can't work hard enough for salvation. You can't be nice enough for salvation. You can't give enough things away for salvation. There's one way for salvation, and it's only through Jesus Christ. You see, we we see this picture with this snake lifted up on the pole as a picture of Christ's crucifixion being raised up on the cross. Now, here's the picture. You see, the sinfulness and all the things that these people dealt with, this venom and the poison that they lived with, was placed on this serpent and placed on this pole, and when they looked at it, they were healed. You see, the, the same thing is true for Christ. Christ takes our sin And all the things that we've done. And he takes our sin for us. And as he's lifted on the cross, if we look to him, we will receive salvation. You see the correlation there? You see the picture of all that God had done? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin. That's important. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. You understand that? God takes our sinfulness and he places it on Christ. So when we look at Christ on the cross, we see our sin, we see our misdeeds, we see our wickedness, we see our poison and our venom. You understand that? Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, curse is everyone who is hung on a tree. You see, God takes the curse and the evil and he places it upon Christ. John Wesley said it like this, he said the serpent signified Christ, who was in the likeness of sinful flesh, though without sin, as this brazen serpent had the outward shape, but not the inward poison. The pole resembled, resembled the cross upon which Christ was lifted up for our salvation, and looking up to it, designed our believing in Christ. See, it's a picture. Of taking the sin and the evil and the poison and placing it up on a pole so all who look at it will be saved. It's the same picture of Jesus Christ. See, we see this incredible picture of Christ, but we see this incredible picture of salvation. It begins with sin. We're all there. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that. It moves to the judgment, Romans 5, for the wages of sin is death death. It moves thirdly to repentance, to recognizing that we're sinful, to turning away from our sin and ourselves. And the fourth thing we see is ultimately a picture of Christ, who giving His very life took our place on the cross and He bore our sins. And just as the people of Numbers chapter 21 could look up at the serpent and be saved, we can look up to Christ on the cross and receive salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word, Lord. We thank You again for the clarity of Your Word. We thank You for the clarity of all the things You've shown us in this text, Father, and for all You've shown us in this account and for the clarity in this whole great story that we're studying, Father. We just are amazed at how You put pictures of Christ all through the Old Testament. And Father, we're reminded of Your glory and Your holiness and Your power. but We're reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us on the cross all those years ago. As he took our sin, Father, and he took all the poison that surrounds us and all the evil that we deal with, Lord, and he took it for us. And he took our place and he offers us forgiveness and salvation, Father. Lord, I pray right now specifically for that man or woman or that child right now that hears my voice, that's never accepted that forgiveness, that's never asked for that forgiveness, Father. I pray you just in, impress upon their hearts the importance of repenting from their sins, turning to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, may your name be glorified. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to give you the opportunity for the next couple of minutes if you want to come down and pray. If you want to turn from your sins and repent, turn to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you want to join this church, this is your time right now. As We sing together. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. We invite you to visit our campus at 3794 Hamilton Road in LaGrange, Georgia. Or visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. God bless you.